Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome back to another episode of Chasing Excellence. My name is Patrick Cummings. Every week here on the show, we dedicate some time to exploring how we can live a life with better health and increased fulfillment. And Ben and I, thank you as always for joining us. This week on the show, we have a fantastic interview with Dr. Robert Waldinger, author of the new book, The Good Life, and the director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development, which is the world's longest scientific study of happiness. We talked to him about the impact that social isolation has on our health, what secure attachment is, the two things he believes we need to live a life of happiness and health, and much, much more. Before we get into the conversation, just a quick reminder, if you are not yet subscribed or following the show, wherever you are listening or watching, please do. That way you will not miss another episode when they come out, and it will also ensure that we get to continue putting these episodes out and having these kinds of conversations. So thank you in advance for doing that. Okay, without further ado, here is our conversation with Dr. Robert Waldinger. One of the things that Ben and I talk about on the show uh, a lot is something that we call the five factors of health, which is just which are just the the five things that are most in our control and most positively or negatively, but hopefully positively affect our health. And those five things that we always talk about here is how we move, how we eat, how we recover or rest or sleep, um, how we think, our mindset, and then the fifth is how we connect with each other. And I wanted I start with that one just to kind of give you some context so the conversations that we have here often. And but but I but I also uh, bring that up because, and I don't remember if you, or I don't know if you remember this, Ben, when we first started putting together the idea of the five factors, it happened to be right at the same time that we stumbled on your TED talk, which is, and this was, I don't you can tell us when the TED talk was, but five or six years ago. 2015. Our, yeah. Yeah. And I remember Ben was like, here are the four factors of health. And I was like, Hey, you, do you remember the TED talk we just both watched together? It feels like connection should be part of it. So we were like, yes, absolutely. And so I want to start there and just, can you give us a sense of just your work, uh, the context in which we're having this conversation, the context of the book, the good life. Um, and we can maybe start wherever you feel like it's appropriate to start. Sure. So let me start with where the work lives. It's it this is the longest study of adult life that's ever been done anywhere. It's in its 85th year and it's still going on. It started in 1938 and it's followed the same people. That's what's so rare. Many studies take snapshots of people at, you know, different people at different times, but to take the same person from the time maybe they were in middle school all the way into their 90s, that's unheard of. And so we've studied now over 2,000 lives. And what we have done is essentially been able to map all the big dimensions of life for these many, many people. Um, and would you let, would it be helpful for me to tell you a little bit about who's in the study, what, Please, what the yeah, groups are? Okay. It started out as two studies that didn't even know about each other. They both started at Harvard, but one started at the Student Health Service. It was a study of Harvard College sophomores whose deans thought they were fine, upstanding young men, and they, they wanted to study the developmental path from adolescence to young adulthood. So if you want to study normal adult development, you study all white guys from Harvard. Right, it's like really politically incorrect to have that sample, but at that time, that's what they chose for healthy development. The other study was started at Harvard Law School, and it was a study of why some kids who grow up in really disadvantaged circumstances and troubled families, why those kids managed to stay out of trouble, managed to take good developmental paths. And so they went to Boston's inner city, um, to, you know, Dorchester and Chelsea and Southie and the West End. And they recruited kids from families that were really troubled. 
and but kids that were doing well. So both of these groups, the privileged Harvard guys and the very underprivileged inner city guys, were combined in the 1970s to be two two really diverse groups of people. And then when I came on 20 years ago, we brought in women. First, we brought in all the wives, and then uh, we reached out to the kids. So we've studied almost all the children who are now mostly baby boomers. So all told, we have over 2,000 people. Mm, Fascinating. And one of the things you say in the book is that um, of all the things, you know, back to the, the five factors, of all the things that we consider important in, on, uh, in terms of an impact on one's health and one's happiness, exercise, diet, all the things, one of the, the big takeaways from the study is that of all the things, it's good relationships that seem to be the, have the, the highest correlation of happiness, of health, or you, you tell me, I don't want to put words in, in the mouth of the study, um, but that's one of the big takeaways, correct? Yes. So it was a takeaway that we didn't even believe at first. So starting in the 1980s, we began to find that, you know, we had we had followed by then some people all the way into their 80s, like several hundred people. And we had gotten information from them all the way along. So we said, okay, if we look back to when they were 50 years old and we want to predict who's going to be happy and well in their 80s, and who's going to be sick and sad in their 80s? What are the best predictors? And we thought we'd, you know, it'd be cholesterol level. We thought it would be blood pressure. It turned out to be how satisfied they were in their relationships, that that was the strongest predictor. Now, is it stronger than your health behaviors? No. And nobody's ever really been able to make that comparison in a rigorous way. But we know that it's really powerful. So one estimate, for example, is that social isolation and loneliness are as dangerous to your health as smoking half a pack of cigarettes a day or of being obese. So we're beginning to find out that these effects of relationships um, are really as powerful as some of the things we always thought would keep us healthy. That's... um... I mean, that's that's staggering the the fact that it's reason that we decided to include in our own model in our own framework this level of connection which is our word for relationships into how to live a healthy and happy and fulfilled life i i'm curious if how do we determine because i think this is like when you talk about cholesterol when you talk about um in terms of going to the gym, there's easily mappable data, numerical numbers that we can say good, bad, um, needs improvement, excellent, whatever it is. What's the the measuring stick that we can use today to know if we're if we have meaningful relationships? I understand the the isolation one seems to make sense. Well, maybe it doesn't. Maybe you could because you've highlighted that like, you could be surrounded by people and still lonely. Exactly. So. Maybe maybe if you could just kind of dive into what are the um, the measuring sticks we can use yeah. to know whether we're on the right track or we should be uh, leaning into this a little bit more. Well, let me first say how we think this works because, you know, as researchers, the question becomes, well, if there's some relationship between uh, our connections with other people and our physical health, how could that happen? How, how could that get into your body and predict that if you have good relationships, you're less likely to get coronary artery disease. You're less likely to have arthritis. How could that possibly be? And this is, this is getting to what you were asking about, Ben. It's this idea that good relationships are stress regulators. So if you think about it, like, Something happens to you that's really upsetting during your day and your body goes into fight or flight mode, as we know. You know, heart rate goes up, blood pressure goes up, all the changes that happen. And that's fine to meet a stressor. We, we want our bodies to do that. But then when the stressor is removed, we want our bodies to go back to a baseline equilibrium. And 
you know, if you think about it, something upsetting happens in your day and you have somebody at home or somebody you can call at the end of the day and talk to about it, you can literally feel your body calm down as you talk about it with somebody who's a good listener. What if you don't have anybody? And what we think happens is that social isolation or loneliness, you know, being in the middle of a crowd but feeling unconnected from everybody, that those turn out to be chronic stressors. And what we think that means is that our bodies don't ever return to baseline equilibrium. They stay in some kind of low-level fight-or-flight mode. And, And what that means then is chronically elevated circulating hormones, stress hormones like cortisol, um, low level of chronic inflammation that will break down body systems slowly but gradually. Um, So that's how we think it works. That's the best hypothesis based on a lot of data we have now. Um, And that, but then there was another part to your question, Ben, I'm not sure I, yeah, I think, well, I think it's, 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 um, it's worthwhile to highlight what that we talk about that a lot in terms of um, the autonomic nervous system and moving from this parasympathetic to the sympathetic nervous system and back and forth and being able to turn it off when necessary and how evolutionarily it was a benefit for us. We needed it. If you were faced with that um, acute stressor, the saber tooth tiger, the storm destroys your shelter, whatever it is, you need that flip of a switch to go like, Hey, mobilize, do your things, like leave the gut, go to the extremities. We want to use the working muscles, heart rate pump, pupils dilate, like let's go, go, go. But then evolutionarily, we were able to shut that off when the 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 immediate dangers went away and we were back at the campfire kicking it with our homies and, you know, the um, the it was about being with the tribe and being able to relax. And modern society hasn't allowed us to do that as effectively because of the traffic jams, the social media, the 24-7 work, um, the, the, the constant communication, news, and drama that goes on in our lives. And the, the, the theory conceptually is that without that um, close loved one to be able to kind of use as a mechanism to allow that to shut off, you then set yourself up for this no longer acute inflammation, no longer acute spike, but chronic. And it sits there for prolonged periods of times. And that is what causes, could be a, a root cause of some of these chronic diseases. Not, not, the, not the ones that, you know, we're not saying that you're more likely to survive a car crash, right. but um, you're more likely to maybe some of the the more modern diseases of Western society. You're no longer as um, as susceptible to be able to buffer against those things. So then, my question then becomes: How do we know? Besides, like, okay, I can go home and share my troubles with my spouse, with my loved ones. I can go home and say, like, "Hey, honey, today was a tough day," and get that off my chest. Are there other levels to know how meaningful? Because I really like this idea of it may not necessarily be the number of relationships you have, but it's the it's the depth of those relationships. And one of those certainly is being able to share things that are on your mind or things that are troubling you. Are there other metrics that we could use to self-evaluate the depths of the relationships that we have? Yeah. So what... At one point, we asked our study participants, who could you call in the middle of the night if you were sick or scared? And most of them could list, you know, one, two, sometimes many people. Some people couldn't list anybody. There was nobody on the planet who they really felt would have their back in a time of trouble. And what we think is, this is what we call in my my field, secure attachment. And what we think everybody needs is at least one person who they feel really has their back, who they could go to if things got terrible. Um, And that having that for some people is enough, especially for people who might be shy, who might be introverts. That's not a problem to be shy, to not want to have a lot of people around. But we believe that everybody needs somebody like that in their life. 
And then all of our needs are different. So some of us are Mm. extroverts and we get energy from other people. And for those people, they need a lot of people in their lives. They, They love having a lot of people around. Other people don't want that so much. And, and none of that is abnormal, right? It's just that we're all on a spectrum from introversion to extroversion. Cool. So it sounds like kind of that litmus test, that Mendoza line, the, the binary yes or no is, I think you just called it uh, secure attachment. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Um, is a matter of, is there somebody that you can... Um, that will be there for you when you feel vulnerable. And yeah. I guess the implied in that as well is, do you feel um, safe enough to be vulnerable with someone? Exactly, exactly. And ideally, do you let them be vulnerable with you? You know, is it a two-way street? I love that idea of from there, because I'm, um, Patrick and I both label ourselves as introverts and um, we're not the the ones that want to go and be the center of attention with uh, 35 people at a party. Um, We'd rather be the wallflowers. And I love that uh, that idea because this helps me. Um, From there, it's kind of like a yes, no type thing. And uh, if no, go get that person. Yeah, (laughs) If yes, from there, like um, it's individualized. And do you gain energy from being around people or from times alone and it's individualized after that. What are what are some of the other that's a because that's a fascinating question. Um it's interesting that you you phrase it that way. Do you have somebody that you would feel comfortable calling in the middle of the night if you were afraid or scared? Can, are there are there other questions that you kind of like have um been surprising to you or so what are some of the other questions? How exhaustive is this um, examination? Because I know that it goes beyond just sending them a questionnaire. You spend time with these people as well. Oh, yeah. So we even starting out in 1938, they uh, did medical exams, uh, elaborate skull measurements, because they thought the shape of your skull determined your personality and your intelligence. Now we know that's not true, but that's what they thought. Thank God. Yeah, really. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but, but then, you know, they went to... Workers went to their the the parents' homes and talked about discipline style and made notes about what they were serving for dinner. So, so many different observations. And then there were, of course, questionnaires. But then eventually uh, we started audiotaping, videotaping, videotaping people talking with their intimate partners. Um, and then when I came on board, we started drawing blood for DNA. Uh, which is really cool because if you think about it, in 1938, when the study started, DNA wasn't even imagined. Um, we eventually started putting people in the MRI scanner and looking how the, at how their brains light up when they look at positive images versus negative images. So what we've done is we've studied kind of the big domains of life, mental health, physical health, work life, relationships, but we've kept adding tools as we develop new tools for studying the human condition. And it's actually one of the most interesting parts of the study. It's kind of a history of science as well. You mentioned that um, loneliness was as detrimental to health as smoking half a pack of cigarettes a day. Uh, Are there other, um, so that's like, that's really profound and incredibly it's easy for anybody to kind of get their their head around as to how detrimental that is to their health uh, are there other um next to loneliness were there other things that surprised you from the study um i think that if we're talking about um um health are there other aspects that popped up that um, maybe they didn't even know that they were starting to study in the beginning that started to uh, become one of those things that were like, ooh, this is really interesting? Yes. Um, won't surprise you, but will confirm something that we know. When we looked at the inner city men and the Harvard men, the Harvard men lived on average 10 years longer than the inner city men. So 
privilege, access to resources, access to healthcare makes a huge difference in the length of our lives. Okay. Not a surprise, wow. but we can really document it. You said I, that was 10 years? 10 years. Wow. Yeah. You know, everybody in Boston, everybody in the United States in the 20th century, right? Um, but the other thing we found, so we had 456 inner city guys, 25 of them graduated from college, which is really quite extraordinary given where they came from. So 25 of them not only went to college, but but finished. Those 25 lived just as long on average as the Harvard guys. And we're pretty sure it wasn't because of their college diplomas. We're pretty sure it was. <laughs> Want to live longer? Go to college. Yeah, no, I don't think that's it. I think it's <laughs> it's partly that you had to have a whole lot of support, both financial and emotional, to get to college and to be able to stay in college. And then there's something we think about education that helped these men, the college guys, get the messages about health and, and wellness that were coming out in the general culture that took longer to get to people who had less education, perhaps who did less reading, mm. didn't keep on top of the news. So we think that education had its protective effects in those ways. But what's really important is that this, that privilege matters, that access to resources really matters. Um, in terms of, uh, so that's longevity and health, but that's part of the study. The other part of the study is if you want to be happy. Yeah. Um, how do you define happy? Well, <laughs> they've, they've done research on this too. And, and happiness falls into two different buckets. Um, one is called hedonic well-being. And what it means is, am I happy right now? So I'm having a nice conversation with you guys. I'm pretty happy right now. It's a moment-to-moment thing, okay? But something could happen in an hour that would be really upsetting to me or really annoying, and I wouldn't be happy. So that's hedonic. It comes from hedonism, right? It's like, am I at a great party? Am I on a beautiful beach? Am I happy? Then there's eudaimonic well-being, and that's that sense of life being meaningful and having purpose. And the best example somebody gave me of the difference is that, let's say you're reading to your child at bedtime, and you're reading the book Good Night Moon, and you've read the book seven times, but she wants you to read it an eighth time, and you're exhausted. Now, are you happy doing this? No. Are, is this the most meaningful thing you could imagine doing? Yes. And so there's hedonic well-being and there's eudaimonic well-being, the, the meaning and purpose kind. And so and, and all of us need some of both, but some of us prioritize one more than the other. Love that. And what did you find in the study that correlated to, I mean, obviously the punchline is the better your relationships, the better your health and your happiness Um, how did you measure happiness in the study, knowing that it is this moment to moment thing? Like people, did you clarify that with the the participants? Well, how did you? Yeah. Well, we measured both. We measured the moment to moment stuff. So we, we asked them, you know, how happy are you right now? And how happy are you in your life? But we also asked them questions about meaning. Are you feeling like your life has purpose? Mm. Do you feel like... You, if you had to live your life over, would you do this? <laughs> um, mm. A lot of different ways of asking it. And in addition, we ask other people about you. So we ask, how happy do you think Ben is, right? And in addition, we like stress you out in our lab and then see how quickly you come back to baseline. Or we have you write down about an, we write about an upsetting event and then we ask you to reflect on it and we see how quickly you come back to baseline. We do all kinds of things hmm. to see both what different aspects of your happiness and well-being are, but also to see how quickly you recover from unhappiness and stress. 
How did you get involved in this? <laughs> well, my the third director, my predecessor, was a psychiatrist named George Valiant. He lectured to my med school class, and I thought this was the coolest thing in the world, but I never imagined I would end up like running it. And then at one point, many years later, I was already learning to do research and George took me out to lunch and said, how would you like to inherit this study? And my jaw dropped. And then I thought, okay, I don't know anything about this, but what the heck? So it was kind of taking a flyer to because it's a big, messy data set. I mean, you know, hundreds of thousands of pages, some of them crumbling now from 1938 and so much messy data. Um, so it was kind of taking a flyer, but I thought this would be perhaps one of the biggest adventures I could have in my professional life. So that's, that's what I did. One of the things that, uh, that struck me, uh, in reading the book and just thinking about the study itself is that the, the study is very much, obviously the, the point of the study is to understand people's lives so that you as researchers can start to piece this puzzle together. Um, and, and so a lot of these folks going through it, I imagine they're not, they're not sitting around thinking, how can I be happier? How can I build better relationships? Right. They're, they're just answering your questions. They, the questionnaire shows up or you, a researcher shows up. And so I, I say all that to say like, part of this that's really interesting is, is that we think about relationships often in connection and to some degree health as sort of like a, I hope, I hope, <laughs> I hope we have good relationships. I hope I'm healthy. I'm hoping, I'm hope that at 80, when you ask me how I'm doing, I'm, I'm positively reflecting on my life. But one of the things in the book that uh, I was hoping we could get into a little bit is just this idea of social fitness, yeah. which in the same way that we talk about fitness in the gym, it's a proactive uh, pursuit. It's not, let's just hope we get healthy. Let's hope by living our lives as, as best we can, we're, we we get to 80, we get to 90, we get to 100. Can you talk to us a little bit about just the, the that idea of reactive and proactive and specifically maybe get into this idea of social fitness, what that is and what that what how we can take that and begin to be more proactive where we can? Sure. So one of the things we saw when we studied all these lives was that some people prioritized relationships. They really kept making efforts to make sure they got together with friends. They did things with family. You know, they they were proactive, as you say, and that other people didn't. And what we saw was that many perfectly good relationships would just kind of wither away from neglect. You know, I used to think, oh, my friends are always going to be, my, if they're my good friends, they're always going to be that way. Turns out we know that's not true when we think back on it. And so we, we thought using the term social fitness might be helpful to get us to think of it more like physical fitness, more like going to the gym. You don't go to the gym today and come home and say, I'm done. I never have to do that again, right? Uh, and, and what we want to say is, yeah, Ben, you're kind of wondering, maybe, maybe, you know, I have. But, but we're sort of thinking, you know, um, that fit, that social fitness is like that, that what we need to do is make it a practice, an ongoing practice. Now, when you think about all the things that are in our lives, you know, work and family and other things, how do you make your social connections a priority? And so what we talk about in the book is the idea that these can be small choices. You can make them every day. You can certainly make them every week. Um, so for example, you know, I'm like, I'm a Harvard professor, right? I could work all the time. And there've been times in my life where I just worked nonstop and neglected everything else. Uh, I broke up a couple of relationships because of it. And what I came to understand from doing this research is that I needed to be much more intentional about this. And so, you know, when I think, what am I going to do this weekend? Well, I could spend the whole weekend editing papers and doing my email and, you know, doing all that stuff that that's endless for us. Right. Or I could make sure I see my friend or I could make sure I see my cousin, or I could make sure that my wife and I actually 
talk to each other in some meaningful way. And so what it's made me do personally is be much more intentional about this. Why, why, I mean, it's, it strikes me as one of those things that when you say it, relationships are important. They're, they're an integral element of our health and our happiness. It strikes me like everybody would agree to that. Like, yeah, of course that makes sense. Right. right? It's same as like, yes, you, sh- of course I should eat more vegetables. Right. right. <laughs> but where is the disconnect? Like, why is yeah. it so common for us? And this is something I struggle with myself that I'm trying to figure like, why is it so hard to prioritize relationships over fill in the blank, any number of things, whether it's work, whether it's something yeah. else, what, like what, where's the disconnect between the, 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 the thing that seems obvious and the fact that so few of us manage to really get it dialed yeah. in. Well, first of all, we get messages all day long from the culture that we should really prioritize other stuff, you know, like making a lot of money, like, you know, becoming famous, um, like, you know, winning, winning prizes at work, right. Becoming the CEO, right. And we get those messages everywhere. They're subliminal and they're also right out there, right out front, um, everywhere we look. It's also true that with relationships, they're messy and they're complicated, right? Like, you know, relationships are never uh, smooth all the time. There's always conflict in a relationship of any depth and length. So it means working out differences. It means, you know, people are annoying, I'm annoying in my relationships, right? And so it means like figuring out, well, what, how can I, how can we live with each other, and so we can enjoy each other, and how do we work out our differences? Um, the other thing is there are no awards for relationships. You know, you can't say there are no badges of accomplishment the way there are badges of accomplishment at work, or God knows, you know, in terms of how much money you make, or, you know, the number of followers you have on social media, those are badges. You don't get badges for relationships. Um, And so I think that it's just easy to say, oh, you know, just to ignore them, uh, to say they'll take care of themselves, because there's no prize at the end. The prize is what happens along the way. It, the study started with men. What what have you seen in specifically in men as it relates to their understanding around relationships? And I think Ben, uh, you mentioned vulnerability, which I think is one of those things that many men struggle with. And I would imagine that in 1935, many men struggle with more than even today. Even though I don't, I think it's still a challenge today. Can you talk to me, talk to us a little bit about just what the trajectory may may have looked like, men specifically, but maybe not, as it relates to this idea and this understanding of the importance of relationships and vulnerability, et cetera, as those 80 years? Are we any better in terms of understanding these things today than we were in 1935, or is it just same problem, slightly different context? I think we may be better because there's more of this thinking in the culture uh, than there used to be. Um, people wouldn't be shocked now to hear what we're talking about. They might have been, it might have been a little more surprising in the 1930s, especially among you know three men sitting around talking about this. Like, what are we doing? Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> people still wonder that today. Yeah, well, really, yeah, 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 yeah. But but I think but you know to your question, Patrick, I think I think. Um, Certainly in that generation, so the World War II generation, when we asked them in their 80s, as you look back on your life, what do you regret the most? A lot of them, many said, I wish I hadn't spent so much time at work and I wish I had spent more time with the people I care about. I think many of us would also say that now as we see where our lives are going. Um so that I think it's it's something that, I mean, one of the reasons why I care a lot, why I wrote this book, right? I care deeply about these ideas because I see how much they matter in people's lives. But it, it we do get drawn away from the priority of connecting with each other by all these other uh, seemingly flashy baubles in our in our lives. Um, so, so anyway, that is just to say that I think it is something we keep losing sight of and that we need to keep reminding each other of. 
um, sticking with the idea of social fitness. Cause to me that felt like as I read it two or three times, cause it felt like it, it's like it, I think you've done a good job of connecting it with the idea of fitness, of exercise, of like, okay, this is a, this is a daily habit. This is a, this is an active pursuit and not a something that I hope happens. Um, and you've got this idea of just the the social universe. Can you just kind of unpack that a little bit? And maybe we can use that as, as a bit of a practical exercise that folks can actually start to do for themselves um, that kind of gets at some of this kind of proactivity. Yes. So what in the book, we, we have some exercises where we ask people just to take stock of what's in their life right now in terms of relationships in a couple of different ways. So one way is relationships provide us with all kinds of different things. Um, so for example, you know, there's some people I have fun with. There are other people I talk about really heavy stuff with, really personal stuff. There are some people who I know they'll they'll loan me their tool if I need if I need to fix something and I never have the right tool for what I need to fix. And um you know, and there's some people who will give you a ride to the doctor, right? There are all these different things we get from relationships. So one of the things people can do is just sit down and you can even make notes about this. What do I get? What And do I have enough in my world of fun? Do I have enough of, you know, emotional support? Do I have enough logistical help, material support? You know, all those things. Um and what would I like more of? So first is a kind of checking in about what I have and then thinking about, well, where could I have more of what I feel isn't there? And could it be with somebody I already am connected to? Could I develop that? Or are there some new people I could reach out to and try to make different, some new friends? Um, so there's that first assessment. And then and then there are a bunch of exercises we have in the book um, about sort of what you can do, like how you can start to make these little decisions that can have big ripple effects. Um, so I, I tried this once with a group. I was giving a talk, and I've started actually doing it more than once now, where at the end of my talk, I say, okay, I want you to think of somebody you you miss and you'd like to be connected to and you you feel a little out of touch with. Now, take out your phone and text that person. And then, and so most people actually do it right there mm-hmm. in an auditorium. And then during the question and answer, I say, did anybody get a response back? And you see all these hands go up and people will say things like, my friend was so glad I reached out. He just had surgery and, you know, or I just made a date with this person I haven't seen in a month. And, you know, and so you, what happens is these tiny things you can do have these ripple effects. And so that's part of what we do in the, in the book. We, we point out that there are these specific things you can do to, first of all, figure out what you'd like more of, and then take little actions to get it. Nothing, it doesn't have to be anything monumental. And there's, there's a, uh, a give and take to that as well, right? There's, there's, what do I get? What do I, and I don't mean this selfishly, but like, what do I receive with this yeah. relationship, right? Whether it's the learning, whether it's the fun, but there's also the flip of that, right? There's also what, what do I bring to this person? What do I bring to this relationship, right? So it's not just a selfish endeavor, but it's in fact, a, a kind of a mutually beneficial endeavor. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that makes some relationships particularly strong if it is mutual. Um, rather than one person being the giver and one person taking it all, uh, or one person being the listener and one person doing all the talking, those are less satisfying and they're less stable friendships. Mm-hmm. You've had um, a privilege to be able to talk to so many people throughout their lives and particularly um as they near the end of their lives. And you mentioned that, you know, you ask them, what do you think of your life? And they've responded with, you know, wish I, the, the, it's kind of cliche at this point, but no one ever said, I wish I spent more time in the office. Exactly. Are there other um, takeaways that you've used, that you've heard that we can kind of bring to, because I was, one of my big, um, paradigms is we we live in this sort of 
hedonic state where we're constantly chasing either the the pleasures of the moment now or um, trying to push off the the pains of tomorrow and we also live in a world of temptation and it's about now it's about the so that leads people to well I need to earn more I need to achieve more I need the more the accolades the awards the applause I want the those outside reinforcing things because that they look for the outside and right it it might it might push away some of the the inner work that people could be doing is there any other um takeaways that people have had as they get towards the end of their lives as they look back um besides just kind of like office versus um spending time with people that are close to them yeah well one of the big takeaways You can also get just by meditating or by doing anything that focuses you on the present, which is that it bring. You can keep bringing yourself back to what's happening right now, because you talked about kind of putting things off. You know, seeking that golden ring. You know, that's off in the distance, right? Off in the future, and I think that one of the things some people look back on when they look back on their lives, they 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 look back and say. I've kind of missed my life. I was so focused mm. on the future that I never, you know, that that cliche of take time to stop and smell the roses. Well, it's it's take time to be in the moment, right? And there are many ways you can do that, but it it's a really important counterbalance. Yes, it's important to plan for the future and it's important to have goals. Not I'm not knocking that at all, but it's really possible to miss your life as it's happening if you're just focused on the future. So I would say find find whatever makes you come back to the present and spend some time with that. Life moves pretty fast. If we don't stop and look around every once in a while, we might miss it. Yeah, yeah. That's a quote by the famous Ferris Bueller. Yes, exactly. <laughs> There's a reason why that movie's iconic, right? That's right. He had a lot of wisdom, that guy. Your TED Talk is phenomenal. It, um, it, it reshaped the way I thought about health and um, it made it much more uh, exhaustive and inclusive. And I, you could not have picked a better title for your book, The Good Life. Um, absolutely uh just love uh, those three words like the good life what in your mind being exposed to these now 2000 people for 80 plus years what in your mind makes up the good life huh. the little question right um yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, and why are we here why are we here <laughs> well okay actually you know i would say it's two things it's being engaged in things that you care about in the world, and it's being engaged with people you care about. And if you can have those two things, you're, that's, that's a good life. Hmm. What are the common things that stand in people's way of those two things? What have you found to be the, the barriers that Maybe to, all, to some degree, we're all kind of working against. But like, what 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 can we keep our eye out for that seem to at least in in the research seems to get in a lot of people's way? Well, I will say that one of the biggest um, regrets that many of the women in the study had will will point to this, Patrick. They said many of them said, "I wish I hadn't spent so much time worrying about what other people thought." Mm. Because I think that we can, we spend a lot of time holding ourselves back from things that we might dare to do, we might dare to express, uh, you know, because we're worried about being rejected, about being judged harshly. And so I think that to the extent that we can notice, you know, when we're, ju- I mean, I, I, I'm a great judger of myself and it's terrible and it's really inhibiting and I've learned to get better at noticing it and putting it aside but it's it's a that's a practice and I think that a lot of times when we 
get get clear about these stories we're telling ourselves that people won't want me or people will disapprove and really see through them, we can be a little freer to, to do more of what we love. Yeah, it strikes me that judgment both of self and of others is a massive hindrance in between actually connecting with them. Yeah. And both, whether it's you're judging yourself, you're going to keep somebody at arm's length because you're worried that they see you in the worst case that you see yourself or you judge others and you keep them at arm's length because of whatever reason. Um, that strikes me as, as that feels very true. Yeah. The judgment stands in the way of, of a lot. In, um, in my Zen practice, we talk about, you know, being trapped in the mind of right and wrong. And what if you can step outside of that where there isn't right and wrong, you can just, and I don't mean moral and not moral. I don't, I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about all the little judgments we're making moment after moment. What if you can step outside of that when you think about yourself and when you think about the people you're with? We're so eager to label things as good or bad, right or wrong, to, um, Uh, to want to classify things as uh, lucky or unlucky. And when we do that, it, we're, we're doing ourselves a disservice because we're playing the judge when we don't have enough perspective on the present moment and know yet whether this is a, uh, a beneficial or hindering experience. Right. I mean, think about things that have happened in your life that you thought were terrible and then they turned out to be entirely different, not necessarily terrible at all, maybe good. And certainly life took a different turn than you expected. And so it's helpful to remember that when we think we're so sure of what's good and what's bad and what's right and wrong. Yeah. And what's even to the point of like, what's meaningful and what should we give our attention to? Yeah. People get so caught up in the, the sometimes the, the small and the petty things Um and because that they, that might be one of the reasons that people get to the end of their life and like, I kind of missed it. Yeah. They were paying, it's, it's really easy to pay attention to the, the inconveniences um, that present themselves along the way and miss the bigger meanings that we um, all have the ability to experience. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, <laughs> one of the first exercises I was assigned as a meditator by my teacher was to just notice all the the number of judgments I made as I sat in meditation for 20 minutes and I thought my head was going to explode it was I mean it was I was just judging the whole time and and on the one hand it was it was daunting but it was really helpful because it be, it's it began to shine a light on what the judging mind is like and what it feels like and that I and I began to get glimpses of stepping outside of that and it's really helpful how were you uh, introduced to meditation I tried to meditate on and off after reading some books about it and found it fascinating, but I couldn't keep it going. Every time I got stressed or busy, I'd stop. And somebody said to me, you need to find a teacher and a group you can sit with regularly. And when that happened, I actually, it was at the Unitarian Church, five minute walk from my house. I went to a church service there for some other reason. And somebody said to me, you know, the guy, the minister there is a Zen master. So Mm -hmm. I went and met with him, really liked him and started sitting with his group, learning from him. And that's kind of how it developed for me. How long ago was that? Uh, 2005. What if, besides the, the awareness of um, the ease to judge, um, what else have you taken away from your practice? Oh, wow. So much. Well, first of all, the, you know, this, this old saying, don't believe everything you think, um, that I, my thoughts, you know, that, that when you sit down and you watch your own mind, you just see that you're caught up in this endless stream of thinking and cause that's what our minds do. But then when you meditate, 
you can open up to everything that's so much bigger than thinking, right? Like there's just so much else going on right now. Uh, I'm sitting in this chair. I am, you know, my heart's beating. My, I can hear the sound resonate through my head. There's so many things happening that aren't about my thoughts. And so what meditation did was it really opened up my awareness to the world being so much broader. Um, you probably know the, of the writer David Foster Wallace, and he had this phrase, being trapped in our skull-sized kingdoms. And what meditation did was it kind of it kind of opened everything up for me. And it said, I, you know, yeah, my skull-sized kingdom is where I live a lot, but there's a so much there's a huge world out here to be aware of. You mentioned in the um in the in the book that it's not it's not solely about relationships. Yes, what eating healthy and exercising and the, all the things that we've we we say matter and health still do matter. You, you know, you say still matter a lot. Are there other things that you've picked up um, from the study? I know you mentioned that privilege seems to matter. If yeah. the, those that went to college and um, or had access to those resources lived 10 years longer. Um, is there anything maybe even since the TED Talk, which was, um, I guess, seven years ago now that has kind of popped up? Like, like I'm curious, like meditating. Is there something that um, is another correlate that another people seem to be doing um, besides the obvious ones of sleeping well and low stress and um, or maybe those aren't so obvious. Well, there there isn't anything in particular, but one of the things we're learning about, not just from our study, but from other, actually more from other studies, is how our our addiction to screens works how our use of mm. digital media works. And we don't know much mm. yet. There's still, there's so much research that needs doing. But this is what we've seen over the, you know, since I gave the TED Talk is how, how much it matters the way we use the digital world. So, you know, screens aren't going away, right? I mean, here we all are on a screen. But, mm. but, the, but what we know is that the way we use screens uh, matters a lot. So what they find with research is that um, when we use screens to actively connect with each other, it can be very uh, energizing uh, and helpful and make us feel better. When we use screens passively to consume, for example, watch somebody else's Instagram feed and you know watch what they post about their beautiful life, it, it makes us feel like we're missing out it makes us feel like other people have better lives than we do. And it makes us compare ourselves negatively. And so what, what the research is finding is that passive use of uh, the, the digital world is often depressing, demoralizing, and lowers our uh, self-esteem. But that active use can really be uh, quite energizing and enhance well-being. I like there's a quote, I don't think it was yours, I think you reference it, but it's, um, we have a tendency to compare our insides to other people's outsides. Yeah. It seems to be that to be one of the the more uh, detrimental effects, side effects of this passive consumption. Absolutely. Because, you know, think about what we post for each other. I mean, you don't post the photos of yourself when you're hungover, when you're like really angry and you're depressed. You don't do that, right? You, Patrick, Patrick, Patrick does, does, right? <laughs> you, you post the, you know, you post the, the, the beautiful vacation spot you happen to be in or the, right. you know, the great meal you're about to dig into, right? And, but, and we, so we all know this rationally, but subliminally we begin to feel like everybody else is having a better life than I am. And that's because we're curating our lives for each other. We're not telling the whole story. I was talking to my dad just uh, a couple of days ago, and he spends time in Florida. And he, we were talking about this exact thing. And he goes, it was so enlightening to me when I was sitting at a restaurant with one of my friends. And there's a bunch of these college girls down on Florida on you know, whatever it was, spring break type thing. And they're all just sitting there, you know kind of like zombie mode, no one's smiling, all just, you know, in their own little world, staring at their own little screens in their own little bubbles. And then someone goes, 
selfie time. And then they all got together, put on these like <laughs> huge smiles, like, ah, and like took us. And you can imagine like the people on the, seeing that photo on the other end are like, oh my gosh, they're having the greatest time. I'm missing out on everything. When meanwhile, these girls are semi present exactly. even at their own dinner. Exactly. Like they're, they're not having the time of, so it is amazing how we curate life to, and, and that's the comparison we're making. It's another thing I came across recently is, which I really like is when we do compare we're not comparing on a agreed upon scorecard and we don't agree that scorecard in totality against one other individual. What we do is we compare our weakest thing to their greatest thing. And then we compare the next thing, we compare that to another person's greatest thing. So this person's doing so much better than me in their careers. And this person has um, you know, such a better family life. And this person's driving a nicer car. And this person um, seems to take better trips than me. And exactly. we fail to recognize the totality of any of it. It's just like this nature of the beast that we can't tame this thing inside of us that wants to go, uh, we don't have it all. Yeah. I think that's built into our, if I was to look at it evolutionarily, I think that's probably from an, uh, an evolutionary biology perspective, it's probably healthy because it's gone like, hey, I could build a better shelter. I could hunt more. I could um, strengthen my tribe. I could by comparing all these things, but in where we are, these three guys sitting on a screen telecommuting about the meanings of life and happiness and fulfillment, it doesn't serve us at this level whatsoever. It's just completely like um, right. causing that right. chronic stress. Right. Well, you know, and they've actually they've actually studied this and they find that people who compare themselves to others more often during a given day are less happy. So, and there are some people who do less comparing. And so I think one possibility is to notice the comparing when we're doing it and train ourselves to turn away from that when we can. Yeah. One of the things you talk about in the book is uh, increasing our curiosity of other people. And it strikes me that maybe there's a, there's a bit of a... Uh, um, a game to play between when you find yourself comparing, turn that into curiosity, start yeah. to figure out if you can actually learn something from them instead of uh, back to the judging of but judging of myself, judging of others, but actually start to ask some questions instead of make a bunch of assumptions. I love that actually turning the comparing into curiosity. Cause if you think about it, like a lot of people think, gee, I, I really want to be famous, right? But then if you get really curious, well, what would it be like, right, mm. to not be able to walk down the street without people mobbing you? Actually, it wouldn't be so much fun, right? So if you get really curious about some of these things that you start to compare yourself on, I, I love that pointer. Uh, I want to be uh, respectful of your time um, wrapping this conversation up, even though we could clearly uh, go on for a while. I'm, uh, I'm curious, what are you excited about? As it relates to this study, like what are you excited about? You're gonna, you know, you think you might be learning, you think you might start to understand in the next five, 10, 20, 50 years or whatever. Where do you think it's going um, as it relates to the study itself, mm. the work itself? Well, in the next 50 years, I think someone else is probably gonna be doing it. But um, <laughs> come on, Bob. <laughs> yeah, well, I, you know, I'd like to be the exception to this mortality thing, but I'm sort of getting the message that that's not going to be the case. Um, um, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I think, first of all, what, what happens is what we realize is that we, new questions come along all the time. And so we've gone back and asked questions of very old data that they wouldn't have thought to ask. Mm. 50 years ago, right? So what I think is going to be the most interesting is what we're doing now, which is we are making our data publicly available to other researchers. And we have we do a lot of collaboration. We have all the way along, but but we're going to do more of it and we're also going to make it so that you could download our data and do your own analyses of it. De-identified obviously, so you won't know who the people are in the in the study, but 
because what what that allows is for others to ask questions that I couldn't even dream of asking. And that's going to make for new and interesting findings. Fantastic. Bob, thank you so much. Uh, The book, again, is called The Good Life. Really appreciate your time. Really appreciate your work. uh, And very excited to see where it goes. Well, thank you both for having me. Thank you to Dr. Waldinger. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I highly recommend the book. Again, it's called The Good Life. One last reminder, if you are listening and not yet subscribed, please do. It helps the show continue to grow and it helps the show continue to exist. Thank you for your ratings, your reviews. Thank you for sharing the show on social media or with friends. It always makes us happy. If you would like to get a question into the queue for a future episode, please find me on Instagram. Send me a DM at P.S. Cummings and I will add it to our list. Ben and I will be back next week for another episode of Chasing Excellence.